0: Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Amen. Brendan Kilcoyne, coming to you again from the parochial house in Athenry in County Galway. I just hope that perhaps we might reflect together on the Gospel today. If you remember again in the Gospel we meet John the Baptist in fine form, and he's he's emphatically denying that he's the Christ. I discussed this in the last podcast and asserts that he's not fit to undo the strap of the sandal of the one to come, all the rest that we talked about the last time. I was very much moved on reading this gospel to reflect on the meaning of redemption. I'm going to take you on a little little digression, but it will not be unprofitable. Okay, we go down a little side road. I was watching a movie there on Netflix about, oh, I'd say about four years ago. And I came into it purely by accident. I couldn't find anything I wanted to watch and just started to watch this one called The Counselor. I may have alluded to it before. And I'd been watching it for a while when I became absolutely intrigued by the strange quality of the the dialogue. Top cast with uh, Brad Pitt... Cameron Diaz. Uh, I think Michael Fassbender plays the the counselor, the eponymous counselor, the lawyer. And the whole thing set on the Texas-Mexican border, which should have alerted me. And there was something terribly familiar about the the graceful yet slightly stilted archaic philosophizing dialogue, which was panned by some of the critics. Of course, it had to be. It could only be Cormac McCarthy. And sure enough, I discovered quickly that while it wasn't, as I hoped, based on a novel by McCarthy, because I was fairly sure nothing had come out from him lately, he had written the script. And the film is tragic, dark, terrifying. This young lawyer crosses the ethical boundaries and he makes a very uh, a very dodgy, a more than dodgy, a very immoral and illegal investment. Uh, The investment goes pear-shaped, but he has crossed some immensely powerful people, very dangerous people, in fact, really quite frightening people. And they intend to make an example of him, and they kidnap his wife, because these people often strike at relatives, to make a point. His beautiful young wife, who has done nothing wrong, they kidnap her, and he knows he has a fair idea from anecdotal evidence that in a case like this they will put her to a terrible death. And so through connections he manages to ring the head of the crime cartel behind the kidnapping and whom he has unwittingly offended. And the man who is uh, Latino, Spanish-speaking, but has, has learned excellent English is a man of wide reading and experience, a most civilised and courteous man Who addresses him carefully throughout the conversation as counsellor, takes great pains to treat him correctly and kindly, and this is where it gets terrifying, gently and clearly makes it known to him in the course of a discussion of philosophy and literature that he can do nothing for his wife, that the matter is set in stone, that nothing he can say will save her, and that nothing he can do will save her not even because he offers the gift of his own life, his own body to torture and kill. They will not accept it. They intend to carry out this punishment irrespective of his pleadings. The man's mercilessness is all the more striking because of the calm, modulated tones, the the easy-going manner, the sophisticated conversation, He's a cultivated and erudite man, a man of the world. And he speaks these terrible things. And in the course of it, he points out to him, he says, you began something. Now, this is a theme of MacArthur's. It comes up in that profoundly dark, disturbing, yet fascinating novel of his, one of his early novels, The um, Blood Meridian, again set on the same border, but in the 19th century. This is a theme of MacArthur's. You began a work. You began something. It's like throwing a stone into a pond and the ripples go out and out and you can't bring back the ripples. You can take the stone back out, but you cannot bring back the ripples. You have begun something. And the effects of that thing you have begun will continue and continue no matter what you do. It's straight out of a Greek play. The gods have been angered. And they will have their day. And in fact they do. He, he ends up weeping helplessly on the phone and the man genially tells him that he has a lot to do in the afternoon and he thinks he may take a little nap beforehand so he has to bid him goodbye. And they do kill his wife. And send him, if I remember correctly, a DVD of the murder. Why am I telling this? Apart from the fact that the film struck me profoundly. I'm telling this because I don't think that we have any clear understanding nowadays, even at the shallowest level of what it is to be redeemed, to be forgiven. There's a wonderful scene again. I know I'm I'm going on and on about films. I, I enjoy a good movie, but believe it or not, I don't watch many movies because I think most of them are garbage. Okay, I think most of what Hollywood produces is slick garbage, and sometimes it's not even that slick. Anyway, that's my rant over. If you come across an absolutely wonderful little film called Ushpitzim, about a Hasidic couple who are celebrating the feast of Sukkot, when devout Jews will live in an outdoor makeshift cabin to celebrate the feast of tents, and This couple, they're very, very poor, and the man doesn't have the makings of a cabin, but he borrows one belonging to a neighbour because the neighbour has put it aside in a communal sort of a warehouse that's behind the houses and has clearly no use for it because he's a much better one now. So he borrows it, but the neighbour realises he has taken it without his permission and is very angry. And the poor man goes to the neighbor and they they go back and forward. And basically the man is saying to him, look, I I can't celebrate the feast unless you forgive me. You must forgive me. And finally, in exasperation, like the unjust judge, because he keeps at the neighbor, the neighbor says, I forgive you. And your man says back to him, "No, no, 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 you must say it as if you mean it. And the neighbor just looks at him as if he were crazy. And he says to him, I forgive you. And he said, no, no, you must say it three times so that I know you've forgiven me. And the neighbour just shakes his head laughing and he says, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. And the the, the man who's, he's a devout Hasidic Jew of the Breslov school. They're a particular school that are, are hugely inspired by the life and work of Rabbi Nachman. We'll talk about him some other time, but he goes out the courtyard, the door of the courtyard, absolutely elated saying to himself, forgiveness, forgiveness, as if it were pouring down his face like the oil on Aaron, the high priest, when it was pouring down over his head and it cascaded onto the collar of his robes and down onto the robes. The oil of anointing, forgiveness, the blessing of being forgiven. And now he could celebrate the feast of Sukkot. Two very different films, I assure you. I don't think we have any sense of what redemption means. I mean, I mean, the word really, it refers to, you know, the buying back of a hostage. All, all right, people maybe still do, but they used to redeem things from a pawn shop. You'd hand them into the pawn shop and get some money, and then when you were in better times with any luck, it might be still in the pawn shop and you'd go back to redeem it, to buy it back. Hostages were redeemed, and the exchange of hostages was quite normal in the ancient world. Kings would send their, they might give a a cherished son as a hostage, and the the hostage would grow up in the family of the other king, a guarantee of his father's loyalty. And if the father rebelled, the hostage would be immediately put to death. In fact, in Tara, there's the mound of the hostages. And so unless you have a sense of having done something very wrong and being forgiven for it, unless you have that experience or unless you have the experience of being, of being just given tremendous help by a friend or a neighbour that gets you out of some absolutely gruesome catastrophe some some complete pig's breakfast some utter mess of your own making unless you have that experience it's nearly impossible to understand what John is promising in the gospel today and what we're preparing to celebrate at Christmas so I'm going to say to you now that if you don't feel it and I'm afraid many Catholics don't feel it if you don't feel it you need to take that to prayer you need to take that to prayer Christmas is coming now. And again, just to say again, I have no issue with the material side of Christmas as long as it doesn't go too far. Nothing as civilised as a few drinks in moderation. Nothing as civilised as a good meal shared with family. It is blessed and beautiful the world over. It is a lovely, lovely thing. I have nothing against the exchange of presents. I love getting presents. And like most people, I love giving them. There's nothing wrong with it. But for goodness sake, if you're not clear as to the whole point of the celebration, it's a hollow affair. I'm not asking you to love God. That comes down the line, okay? I think the mystics would say that a lot of people, you know, they start out not loving God, then maybe they, maybe they love God for their own sake because of what he does for them. And then finally they love God for God's sake. But very few get to that. Could we love God for our own sake? I would suggest that that would be a good idea. Because this is redemption. Forgiveness flowing down your face. Blessing you and anointing you no matter what you've done. Do you understand that? Do you understand that if you play your cards right here you're off the hook? Do you understand that you're off more than the hooks you've made for yourself in your life with your sins? Do you understand our common darkness of which you are absolved in baptism, but which never goes away because the old Adam is always still there? He'll be gone finally one day when you die and please God are judged and you go to heaven. That darkness is always there. And now, oh, come on, don't start on me. Oh, no, no, I'm a good person. I'm this. I'm not saying you're not a good person. It, but like, it's like my saying, you have a beautiful house and uh, I hope the drains work. Or you'll be there in your beautiful house and you won't have a very civilised life. I hope the plumbing works. Not as interesting, not as glamorous, but absolutely essential to living comfortably in a beautiful house. And so I'm saying to you, I hope you have some means of dealing with your darkness. I hope your drains work. (laughs) Don't don't be offended. I think that's called confessions. And I, I am not blaspheming. Get to confessions. Get to confessions for Christmas and let God put you right. I'm not going to say put yourself right because you can't put yourself right. Okay, you can't put yourself right, but let God put you right. I think the biggest thing you could ask God for this, this Christmas is the blessing of knowing you're forgiven and the blessing of knowing you're redeemed and the blessing of knowing what you've been saved from. Read the vision of the children in Fatima. I mean, it's not pretty. I mean mean the the vision of hell. It's not pretty. Please don't put yourself in danger. Please don't sell your birthright. Please don't be cheated like the poor Indians were. they they used to say in parts of the States, cheated out of thousands of acres of land for some flashy, cheap jewellery and some whiskey, tobacco. Don't do that. Please don't do it. Don't let a fast, slick, fast-talking world cheat you of your inheritance. You are redeemed. You are precious. You are the apple of his eye. He has paid a fortune for you. The ransom that was on you was gigantic. It was the blood of God. And he has paid with his own son. He has given his own son as a hostage to redeem you. To get you out. His son was sent into this pit of vipers. That is the world. His son was sent into this. And, and was, was accused. And wrongly convicted. And tortured and crucified. And buried for you. God himself submitted to the grave. To the indignity of the grave. For you. You are bought and paid for. I'm not telling you this just to work your guilt. If you have any sense, you won't even bother feeling guilty. you What you need here are the instincts of a, of a car shark, a conman, a, a grifter. You need to grab this with two hands. I'm telling you now... From the time of John the Baptist to the present time, the kingdom of heaven is won by violence, and the violent bear it away. Grab the kingdom, grab it, grab it like a, like a Viking on a raid. Grab it and run with it. Take your inheritance, take your your forgiveness and clutch it to you. That's my message to you, this advent as we approach Christmas you are dealing with a god who is not a merciless gangster no matter what some think of him the late christopher hitchens called him certainly everything else i'm sure he must have called him that at some stage there was a song by abba the winner takes it all do you remember that song abba weren't bad you know i know you can laugh at me but they weren't bad even some of the lyrics weren't bad The gods may throw the dice, was that it? Or roll the dice, with eyes as cold as ice. And that's just a popular song, and the timeless wisdom in it. That could have been from a Greek play. But our God has eyes of fire, eyes of love, and he forgives you. Will you please, like our hero in the film, our anti-hero, I mean, will you make the call? because you will not be left sobbing on the phone. You are not in the hands of some utterly merciless sociopath. You are in the hands of the the one who made you, and those hands are loving. One of the biggest problems we have is how many unredeemed people we have in the church. And what do I mean by that before you, I don't know, start dialing the congregation for the doctrine of the faith. What do I mean by that? Aren't they baptised? Aren't they, you know, the whole bit? What do I mean by unredeemed? I mean that they're, they're obstructing grace. They've given in to the, what Yeats called the greasy till, adding the halfpence to the pence. Yeats may have been snobbish about shopkeepers. I grew up as the son of a shopkeeper, and, and, and proudly so. But it's a poor man or woman Who lets the money into their soul and can't see any further. What's the shop for if not to feed your family and have a future? I mean, if you can't see beyond the calculations, if you're forever in your life studying the form, a little clerk, a master of the figures, but with no sense of the big picture. If you're going to be only impressed by the everyday and what can be absolutely depended on, what's rock solid and touchable, you are already a pagan in your heart. Or rather, more to the point, you never stopped being a pagan. You were marked, the ontological mark, you were marked with that invisible mark that marked you out as the spiritual and ontological circumcision that marks you out as one of the baptised, yet there is no guarantee that the baptised can't go to hell. And in fact, every likelihood. You really need this Christmas to meditate on the fact, while Advent still lasts, this will not last. It is a passing thing. You have no lasting estate here. You have no lean on anything. There will be no hitch on your hearse. And you'll be bringing nothing with you. You'll go out as naked as you came in. And you'll be carried as you were carried at the beginning. You'll be carried into the church. Will You consider, please, for God's sake, what's real. For your sake. What's valuable. Sift through. Like, a, I don't know, a panhandler out in the Yukon 150 years ago, 100 years ago. Sift To see if there's the faint glint of gold in all the muck. That's where you'll find the gold. In the muck. Don't fall in love with the muck. If you have become absorbed in your work to the exclusion of your family. Break those bonds. I mean you have to work. But master that work. If you become absorbed in your work and your family to the exclusion of God. You are putting both in danger. Because it is only God that guarantees you and guarantees your family a future and guarantees your work significance and meaning. An act is given significance and meaning by the telos to which it is aimed, the goal, the end point. And if your end point is not God, then what meaning has the work that you spend so long at every day? Are you not so much to be pitied? An intelligent mouse in a wheel, in a cage, frantically moving to go nowhere, thundering east on a ship going west. Am I trying to just totally ruin your Christmas? You might well ask that. I I accept that. I'm not trying to do that. On the contrary, I'm trying to give you the best Christmas you've ever had. I used to smoke. I used to smoke quite heavily until about five years ago. I gave them up in the course of that for about five years, but I went back on them again, whatever. But I remember on one of the two or three occasions on which I successfully gave up smoking, I think probably a few months after I'd given up smoking, I found myself back in Rome. This is at least 20, I'd say 25 years ago. I found myself back in Rome, not having smoked for, oh, I don't know, maybe a year. I don't know. And there I was in Rome. Uh, I was trained in Rome and the thing I most missed when I came home was the food. I learned to cook because I missed the food. And I remember having a meal and marvelling at the taste of the food, which was 20 times better than I remembered. And that's interesting because some people would say, you know, these cherished memories, they're never as good when you go back. But this was 20 times better than anything I remembered. It was delicious. Even the sparkling mineral water, I, I felt I could taste it in a way that I couldn't taste it before. What had changed? What had changed was that the, the tobacco, the tar which was coating my palate, was gone. Because all the years I'd been in Rome, I was a heavy smoker. I could taste my food again. And the smokers will tell you that that's one of the things that you lose, is you lose the acute taste an enjoyment of food, you lose it. I could taste my food again. In a spiritual sense, that's what I'm trying to persuade you to do this Advent, is give up the facts. I mean, I don't mean literally. Well, if you're smoking, yes, but I mean, what I'm talking about is give up that which is narcotizing and dulling your spiritual sense. Look again at the meanings of the sacred words that we use in the liturgy. We talk about salvation. We talk about redemption. We talk about a plan of salvation on the part of God. We talk about covenant. It's a concept that goes right through the Old Testament as covenant. And it is completed by Jesus Christ, who is the living covenant. If I can recall you to the Mass, to the words of institution in the Mass, and the point when the priest says the words of institution, it is, the, it is the point, strictly speaking, it is the point of transubstantiation. It is the point of consecration, those words. People think it's at the, the epiclesis when he, when, when he pulls out his hands flat down over the offerings. But it, that, that's not actually the point. It's, it's when he says the words of institution. Take the, this, all of you, and eat it. And take this, all of you, and drink of it. In the second one, we say, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. Noah was given a covenant. Moses was given a covenant. But Jesus Christ is the covenant. He is the word. One word. Because as we're reminded, I think it isn't it by Augustine, the the, the whole of the scripture is one word. The the Vatican document, the Vatican Council document, De Verbum, reiterates this. The whole of the scripture is one word. It is the word of God. The saving, loving, consistent, true, faithful, noble and sincere word of God. Utterly authentic, life-giving, powerful. A sign and an agent of action, it signifies and it does something. The Word of God is something alive and active. It cuts more finely than any double-edged sword. And His Word is. Do you want to know what His Word is? Do you want to know what His Word is to you this Advent? His Word to you is forgiveness. I forgive you. Let me forgive you. Come to the sacraments. Come to the priest and let me give you my forgiveness. Let me pour it over your head. Let it flow down your face, your hair, down over the collar of your robes. Fragrant oil of anointing. I forgive you. I redeem you. I have paid your bill. I have settled the account. You're square with the house. This is huge. This is huge. I mean, you know, we we laugh sometimes at some of the some of the more peripheral Protestant groups and and some Catholic groups imitating them who you know go on and on. They almost you know go in, seem to go into a kind of ecstasy, like whirling dervishes at their at their uh, praise and worship ses- sessions. Uh, because they're saved, they're saved, they're redeemed. But you know, sometimes I envy them, if they really feel that. I worry sometimes that, you know, that kind of thing can be very superficial, getting yourself all whipped up. But I I don't know, is there some different way of doing it? I hope there is, I wish there were. I want to shove my head in a bucket of forgiveness. I want to, to just dive into it as you would into a cool, inviting pool. On a roasting hot day, I want to draw up to you, draw up to it as you would shivering, draw up almost in ecstasy at the change to a, a, a roaring fire on a freezing cold winter day. I want to wallow in his forgiveness. I want to be profligate with his love, to spend his munificence his generosity, to spend my inheritance. These words are enormous and life-giving, and they're there in the liturgy. If, If you get to Mass this Christmas, please try to listen to the words with a fresh ear again. The best way to prepare for that is confessions beforehand, which I strongly recommend to you. Cormac McCarthy is absolutely unparalleled and superb. You you recall his novel The Road, you recall No Country for Old Men, all of those. He's absolutely unparalleled at depicting the tragedy and the pointlessness of life. And that can be a bit overwhelming because sometimes you forget with him And you don't realise that there are some magnificent characters walking through his his novels who defy all of that with their purity. I think of the young man, only about 16 years old, the hero of all the pretty horses, with his integrity and his, his tremendous honesty, his capacity for loyalty, his goodness, his tremendous courage. I would urge you to consider the dark this Advent so that you can better appreciate the light at Christmas. Today we lit the rose candle for Gaudete Sunday. Rejoice, Sunday. We're coming closer to Christmas. Let Christmas be a true celebration, a true appreciation. You may not have got to the last stage where you love God for himself, but this Christmas... Love God for your own sake. That would still be a very significant step forward. Love God for your own sake. Consider what he has done for you, his mighty deeds. Consider what he has done for you, your patron. He is insanely in love with you and he forgives you. If only you will let him, if you will stop obstructing grace. And one of the surest ways to let grace into your life is to clean off the eyes and ears and to read and listen to his word both, both in the scriptures and also in the sacred liturgy, in the mass. So I'm going to leave it there. You have a friend. I'm not asking you to feel it yet. If you don't feel it, you don't feel it and that's it. But you do have a friend. You have a friend who makes nearly all the other friends unnecessary but it's great to have friends. As Dom Eugene Boylan, the Irish mystical writer of the 1950s, as he called him in his famous book, this tremendous lover is in love with you. Let him love you. Let him spend his money on you. Let him pour his forgiveness all over you. You're mad if you throw this up. You talk about gifts at Christmas. This gift is incomparable and if only you could get your head even partially around it, boy, would you celebrate Christmas. The turkey would never taste better. The plum pudding or the sherry trifle will never be more delicious. The stuffing, perfect. If you come to an even partial appreciation of how much you are loved and what a future you have ahead of you, Christmas is quasi-sacramental. It is a promise of the table at which we will all one day sit. In front of a God who forgives, who is merciful, who is full of love. To the point of being a hurtable God, a woundable God, a vulnerable God. Vulnerable literally means woundable. and we will be happy with him forever. Now, how about that for Christmas? God bless us, everyone. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.